Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. I want to thank Shmuley Rabbi Yanklowitz for the introduction. I always like it when I'm introduced as Rabbi Doctor. Often when I'm in these settings, people ask, well, how would you like to be introduced? Rabbi, Doctor, Professor, Chancellor. There are probably a few more titles I can come up with. I usually always think of the line of uh, Henry Kissinger when he was first appointed as Secretary of State. Some of you may know that he was asked, how would he like to be referred to as professor, secretary, doctor? And he just held out his ring and said, your eminence will suffice. <laughs> I'm not sure anyway. That's Kissinger's line, not, uh, not mine. But it, it really is a great honor for me to be here. And uh, I want to say how honored I am to see, first, so many familiar faces. Uh, some of you even have children that I ordained as rabbis and canners uh, among the Jewish people. And so I'm always uh, very happy to meet parents of students that I had. It's been quite a journey the last few years. I'm not certain where all of you are at your place in life, but I very much enjoy being unemployed. I've been trying to get that way for many, many years, and I think I finally achieved it. And, uh, my major task now, Rabbi Yanklowitz was asking before, uh, is that I mostly play with my grandchildren. That is by far the major, uh, major activity at this uh, point in my life, and just happy to see uh, familiar faces and friends here uh, tonight as well. Uh, <laughs> I have just completed a book with uh, a colleague of mine in Israel named Michael Marmer, it's a book that will be entitled American Jewish Thought Since 1934, and it will be published by Brandeis University, where I also taught. Uh, it's called American Jewish Thought Since 1934, because that's the year some of you will recognize the name that Rabbi Mordechai Kaplan wrote, uh, Judaism as a Civilization. Rabbi Kaplan lived from 1881 to 1983 and was really one of the great, uh, if not the greatest philosopher of Judaism virtually in the, uh, in the modern world. One of the interesting things, Rabbi Kaplan wrote his last book at the age of 99, and the Reverend, I'm sure, could comment on this as well. It was entitled, and it's an apt title if you write a book when you're 99, if not now, when? Uh, <laughs> And he used to comment that one of the nice things of living to 100, everyone he had an argument with, he said, I got the last word in, uh, in relationship to them. But these are selections taken from the book. Uh, when Rabbi Yanklowitz uh, and Lisa invited me to come here, 
and they indicated this session with the VIPs. You do look like very important people to me. Uh, he had asked if I would say something about issues of social justice and what is it that's unique about this age. And one section of this book, which is actually a reader in American Jewish thought, uh, deals with issues of social justice. And what I'd like to do uh, would be to just read some of these selections to you. I'm going to highlight certain, uh, certain parts. Uh, one is written by a German Jewish immigrant to this country, a man named Leo Strauss. How many of you know the name Leo Strauss? Yeah, Strauss taught, of course, for many, many years at the University of Chicago. He was forced to leave Germany because of Nazi persecution uh, and was really one of the great political theorists <clears throat> of the modern world. I mean, quite frankly, um, <laughs> you know what, I'm just going to be an academic tonight and describe things and not give my own opinions at this particular moment, but I would say that a lot of writings uh, produced by neocons in this country emanate from the Chicago school that uh, Professor Strauss headed. And in fact, if you look him up, those of you who do not know who he is, there are articles about Strauss's enduring influence even today, uh, often in publications like the New York Times. His influence as a political thinker, theorist in the United States has been really, uh, really immense. He came in 1937 uh, as a refugee. Uh, I guess I can't help but make a political comment. <laughs> The fact is, he was a refugee, and he was allowed to immigrate, and he got the equivalent of a green card. And look how enriched our country was by a man of his stature coming to us. And you can make of that, uh, make of that what, you, uh, what you will. Uh, his critique of modern liberalism, though, has been significant. In any event, this is taken from an article, Jerusalem and Athens, some introductory reflections. It was written in Commentary magazine in June of 1967. Uh, commentary during that period, uh, I don't know how many of you read Commentary today, but during that period, Commentary was quite a left-wing magazine. It was before Norm Norman Podhoretz, Today, his son, John Podhoretz, is the editor. It was before he converted uh, to being a neocon. Uh, he was still really quite liberal at that point. But what I wanted to do was to indicate that issues of social justice have long been on the Jewish agenda. Uh, and in this essay, Jerusalem and Athens, what Professor Strauss does is contrast the thought of Socrates to the thought of the prophets in Judaism. He contrasts the two. When I first got my job at Hebrew Union College as a professor in 1979, and I heard classes run, of course, 90 minutes, and I thought, how can you possibly fill 90 minutes? <laughs> then, of course, I began to teach, and I learned, of course, that I had so much wisdom and I'm sure the reverend could identify with this, that 90 minutes could barely contain all the pearls that uh, I had to throw before my, uh, 
my students. So what I want to do with Professor Strauss's work is just summarize it, and then I want to move on to a second writing by Jill Jacobs that we'll look at at greater length. Basically, this is the point that Professor Strauss makes. Greek thought uh, embodied by Socrates talks about the issue of the philosopher. It was designed principally for an elite, and the point that... Uh, Professor Strauss wants to make building on the thought of a man named Hermann Cohen. Hermann Cohen was the greatest Jewish philosopher in Germany prior to World War I. Uh, Cohen became a full professor of philosophy at the University of Marburg in the 1880s. This was a time when some of you may know Jews were virtually not even allowed admission to German universities. Not only were they not allowed admission, uh, the idea that a Jew could teach philosophy in a German university, uh, virtually unheard of, unthinkable. His genius was such that he not only taught in the university, but he made Marburg the very center of Kantian studies in all of Central Europe. Uh, so Cohen's sheer brilliance was such that he became the most prominent Jewish intellectual in Germany. Strauss bases a lot of his work on Cohen. He says that Cohen said that it was crucial. Cohen, could you all hear me this way, or is it better with the, better with the microphone? Okay. Uh, the key point that Cohen made was that Western thought is in some way a combination of Greek thought represented by Socrates and the thought of the ancient prophets. The issue with Greek thought is that it depended uh, or it was oriented principally, according to Cohen, towards an intellectual elite, not towards the masses. And the idea is that you would have a philosopher king, but also in Plato's work of what the ideal city was, he still imagined that there would be a class of warriors, a class of warriors, and that the idea that there would be universal peace uh, among all peoples was virtually impossible. Furthermore, virtue, as Socrates saw it, was contingent on education, was contingent on education, uh, and he made the assumption that a scholarly elite, a philosophical elite, would know what was best for all of the masses. One of the points that Strauss makes when he discusses Cohen, and I'm just, I don't know precisely where it is here, but yes, on the second page towards the bottom, I want to just point out this one point. Four lines from the bottom on the back of the first page. Cohen's thought belongs to the world preceding World War I and it reflects a greater faith in the power of modern Western culture to mold the fate of mankind, humanity, we'd say today, than seems to be warranted now. The worst things experienced by Cohen, Hermann Cohen, were the Dreyfus scandal. What was the Dreyfus scandal in 1895-96? You had a Captain Alfred Dreyfus. The French had lost to the Germans in 1870. In the 1870s and 80s, they needed a scapegoat. So, of course, who became the scapegoat in France? The Jew. The Jew. And in the, cities, uh, in the city of Paris, in the streets, in the streets of the city of Paris, you had people screaming, death to the Jews. <clears throat> 
Part of what it uh, gave birth to, of course, was the modern Zionist movement. Theodore Herzl was uh, a journalist covering this. And I won't go into the whole history of Herzl here, but it served as a catalyzing event for Herzl, where Herzl ultimately concluded that Western culture was really not a warmer accepting towards Jews and that Jews could live a life of security uh, only in a country that was populated principally by Jews. Uh, Herzl became the equivalent in Jewish history, modern Jewish history, of people like W.B. Du Bois uh, and others in African-American history. Again, I won't go into all the details. And the pogroms instigated by Tsarist Russia, these pogroms in Tsarist Russia in the 1880s and 90s ultimately led to people like my grandparents coming to the United States. I mentioned to the representative before that when I was a young boy, my grandmother on my mother's side lived in Boston. My grandmother would take me every year to the state legislature in Boston. I'll never forget in the state senate, they had the great cod of Massachusetts. It's one of my uh, great memories. And she would bless the United States and say how wonderful it was and contrast it with Russia, where uh, her brother had been killed in a pogrom on, uh, on Good Friday, or my grandfather, who was deaf, was deaf because he had taken a knitting needle and punctured his eardrum in order to make himself deaf so that he would not have to serve as a Jew in the Tsar's army. When I asked my grandfather, Zeta, how could you do that? He would say there are a lot of bad things in the world. To be a Jew in the Tsar's army may be the worst. The reality is, though, that these people, like Hermann Cohen, did not experience communist Russia or Hitler's Germany. In large measure, what occurred in the 19th century was that you had an age of great, great optimism. You had emancipation and enlightenment at the end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century. You had this notion, uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. This idea of equality, then the question, of course, became, well, are African Americans men? If they are, you end up liberating them. And then ultimately, you even had a question, are women men? And if women are men, then you even have to extend suffrage to them. It only takes 130 years from the Constitution for suffrage to be extended to women. You shouldn't think these things change uh, immediately. But what I do want to say is there's an incredible optimism about the 19th century that we're moving towards greater equality and greater goodness. Adolf Hitler comes along, and keep in mind the experience a man like Strauss had. It is hard to believe in moral progress, hard to believe in moral progress once you've lived in Adolf Hitler's Germany. In other words, it may well be that technologically the world has advanced in all sorts of ways, but it's hard to believe that morally people are better than they were before. You have events all the time in history where you think, oh, things have changed. And then it turns out things maybe haven't changed as well as or as much as one might have anticipated. Again, I think many of us thought, quite naively, when President Obama was elected, leaving aside the politics, that America had somehow moved beyond race. Uh, that actually isn't true. Uh, and you don't have to be Ta-Nehisi Coates to make that affirmation. The whole point is things change, but what it led Strauss to assert, and Cohen, 
is that you also need the prophetic ethos. The prophets, unlike the philosophers, asserted that the obligation to behave <clears throat> in a morally upright manner was the obligation of all the people, not just of the leadership. The leadership had to exercise uh, a certain guidance that would inspire people to behave in the right way. But this particular article, it ends with Professor Strauss quoting, Cohen's quoting the prophet Micah. Ma'ashem doreshmi mecha, what is it that God requires of you? Asot mishpat, to do justice. Ahavat chesed, to love mercy. Vatsnea lecheti ma'ashem elokecha, and to walk humbly with the Lord your God. In other words, the key point I wanted to make here in the outset of my remarks, and then I'll allow all of you to ask questions and speak, uh, is that at least initially the point that I want to make is that knowledge alone, which is what Socrates thought would lead to virtue, turned out to be not necessarily true. One could argue, for example, that Martin Heidegger, the German phenomenologist, it's not an implausible argument to make that he may have been the greatest philosophical thinker of the 20th century. Heidegger was a great existentialist philosopher of phenomenology. He happens to also have been a committed Nazi. In other words, part of what the 20th century brings you is the notion that knowledge alone may not bring virtue. And that is what Strauss's point is here when he says that Hermann Cohen, for all his optimism in relationship to the Enlightenment and reason, had not lived through communist Russia or Nazi Germany. Because, of course, what one learns from this is that you need something to supplement in a very significant way rational thought. And that thought for Hermann Cohen was religion and the teachings of the prophets and the teachings of Micah. It is interesting, there is a book that some of you may have read, Lest Innocent Blood Be Shed. Do any of you know this book? Okay, well, I do. That's why I'm teaching today. Uh, <laughs> Lest Innocent Blood Be Shed is about a village, Le Chambon in France. It's a Huguenot village. I won't go through all the details, but what happened in this village? This village set itself up as a sanctuary city as a sanctuary city in France. It was in the mountains. I won't go through all the details as to why this city succeeded, but in the very week in 1940 that the Vichy government took over in France and threatened to kill all of the Jews, the pastor in the village, André Trocmé, got up in his pulpit and said, we are going to become an Ir Miklat. We're going to become a sanctuary city, lest innocent blood be shed. And in this city ended up saving almost 10,000 Jews during World War II who came there in order to be saved. And one of the most important passages in the book about Le Chambon, uh, Lest Innocent Blood Be Shed, what's interesting, after they had made all these plans to save these Jews, there's a very powerful description where 
suddenly one night, a Jewish family comes to the pastor's home. And now they realize the Rubicon is about to be crossed because they've gone from being theoretically sanctuary city to actually knowing that the Nazis could come if they caught them and put them to death. And when the knock comes at the door, everyone in the house freezes. And in a very powerful passage, Madame Trachme, Pastor Trachme's wife, is the first one to move. She simply walks to the door in the description, opens it, says to this family, it's late, you're cold, you must be hungry, you must be tired. Please come in, we will care for you. And that is in fact what they, uh, what they did. Uh, the issue here is that in looking at these people, uh, a philosophy professor from Wesleyan University wrote this book, Lest Innocent Blood Be Shed. He wanted to hear them quote Kant or he wanted to hear them quote some philosopher to explain why they did what they did. The only quotations he could get from these simple people was Jesus said to us, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. In other words, there was an inherent virtue that these people possessed, and it's more complicated than that. But the point that Strauss and Cohen want to make is that for social justice to be done, part of what is required is literally the heart, and that that's not just a matter of intellect. I like intellect. I'm not opposed to it in any way. Wouldn't have devoted my life to academics if I were. But the key point is the teaching of the prophets becomes crucial, which now brings me to Jill Jacobs. And what I want to say is this isn't the only time in Jewish history where we've talked about issues of social justice. So if you would turn for a moment to page four at the bottom, this is a writing from Rabbi Jill Jacobs, uh, who was born in 1975. She and her rabbis like Shmuley Yanklowitz uh, are really the leaders in our community today, nationwide in relationship to social justice. She was ordained at the Jewish Theological Seminary, Unfortunately, not the Hebrew Union College, but it's still all right. Uh, <laughs> and she then uh, was a graduate of Columbia College and did a master's in urban affairs at Hunter. She wrote a book entitled, There Shall Be No Needy, Pursuing Social Justice Through Jewish Law and Tradition. And this is what she writes, and I'm reading on the top of page three. The beauty of America is the opportunity for citizens of different varying ethnic religious and ideological backgrounds to bring their own beliefs and experiences into public debate. Ideally, the conversation around public policy issues will become richer as a result of this diversity of opinion. Yet, and here is her critique of the Jewish community, Jews sometimes hesitate to speak as Jews in the public sphere. In contemporary America, public religious space has largely been claimed by the Christian right. So her challenge here is to Jews, Christians, and Muslims alike, who gets to speak, who gets to speak for religion? And she talks about, uh, in the past decade, the Christian left has grown, 
as organizations such as Call to Renewal and Evangelicals for Social Action have attempted to redefine Christian politics as a dedication first and foremost to poverty relief. Still, many progressives worry that speaking from our own religious tradition will lead to a debate about which religion has the better claim to truth. And others in the Jewish community fear that if we speak out as Jews, <clears throat> it may lead to anti-Semitism. And on the next page, then, look at her quote. As a theologian, the third line on the next page, if Abraham Joshua Heschel had not existed, we would have needed to have invented him. Uh, Heschel, too, was uh, born in Poland, uh, studied in Germany, and was actually, in this case, rescued by the Hebrew Union College and then came to teach <clears throat> as a refugee scholar at the Jewish Theological Seminary. Rabbi Heschel wrote, We affirm the principle of separation of church and state. We reject the separation of religion and the human situation. We affirm the principle of separation between church and state. We reject the separation of religion and the human situation. Basically, the point that Rabbi Jacobs wants to make is that the position the Jewish community takes in relationship to all kinds of social issues, in relationship to poverty, in relationship to immigration, in relationship to social justice in general, should be a direct outgrowth should be a direct outgrowth of uh, what our deepest religious commitments are. Uh, there's a great, great, great Orthodox rabbi named Joseph Soloveitchik. He really led the Orthodox community in America for, for years. He passed away in 1993 at the age of 90. Rabbi Soloveitchik felt that uh, religious and political commitments had to be separated from one another. In other words, he advocated dialogue between Christians, Jews, and members of other religions, but only if religion wasn't discussed, only if he wanted to limit it to political matters. My critique of Rabbi Soloveitchik, and I offer this in great humility, I mean, he was a genius, but if you're religious, how in the world could you speak on political matters as if your religion did not motivate you? to speak in the public arena. In other words, I think that's virtually a category error on the part of Rabbi Soloveitchik to make this point about dialogue in this way. And therefore, what she claims in the middle of the next to last page, what is missing in much of this work by Jews is a real public discussion about how Jewish law and tradition might address contemporary policy questions. And her book is an attempt to do this, and quite frankly, you have a leader here, Rabbi Yanklowitz, who attempts to do precisely what Rabbi Jacobs does. Those on either side of an issue often quote text to support their point, but they do so in a way which does not divide, invite debate or discussion. Instead, when Jews engage in public discourse as Jews, we should bring Jewish laws and principles into conversation in such a way as to enrich rather than shut down discourse. We should bring into this dialogue Jews and others who are engaged in public life, conversations among rabbis, public policy experts, grassroots activists, and Jewish communal professionals should generate a nuanced understanding of how the Jewish community might approach individual issues. So, for example, in her book, Rabbi Jacobs takes a great many writings from a 
section of a classical Jewish legal code called the Shulchan Aruch, the Choshen Mishpat, and tries to indicate how these principles that deal with economic matters in this classical Jewish code, this major Jewish code of law, can be applied to housing issues uh, in the United States today. We don't have enough people speaking in these voices. This approach precludes quoting a simplified version of Jewish law or text in order to prove a point, or asserting that Jewish law unequivocally demands a certain approach to an issue. Rather, Jewish sources should help us to see various sides of an issue, challenge our assumptions, and enable us to formulate a response that takes multiple factors into account. The commitment to living our, Jewish pub our Judaism publicly should then push us to take public action on these principles, both as individuals and a community. And finally, at the very bottom, the Jewish community's deepened involvement in public life may help change the face of religious politics in America, as other communities will recognize the Jewish community as an important and authentic religious voice in the public square of America. Finally, the integration of religion, legal discussion, and participation in public life will install in the Jewish community the power to have a major impact, hopefully, on the ideologies and policies of the United States. We are not the first generation, nor will we be the last, to try to indicate what it is that Jews and Judaism have to say about matters in the public arena. But we need to keep in mind, as Pirkei Avot, uh, the chapters of our ancestors, has indicated, uh, while we're not free to require to complete the work, uh, neither are we permitted lehibatelmimena, we're not permitted to refrain from attempting to engage in this way. One of the reasons I was particularly happy to come to Phoenix is frankly the admiration I have for Rabbi Yanklowitz and to speak at Valley Beit Midrash because I think he has really been a leader and model uh, in much the way Rabbi Jacobs has been to our entire Jewish community nationwide about how it is that Judaism can begin to address and the commitments and the obligations we have to speak about these matters in these kinds of ways. Again, as Rabbi Heschel said, and I love the quote from Professor Strauss, we are not in favor of opposing the notion that church and state uh, should be separated in this country, but neither would we say that religion should not have a voice in the public square where there should be a free and open marketplace of ideas. So again, I've given you a lot uh, in about 20 or 30 minutes, not sure exactly how long, and uh, thank you for listening, and I open to any questions or comments you have. If I may propose, since we only have 10 minutes, let's take a whole field of questions, and then you could just have a few minutes just to respond to whatever resonates with you. And, you know, one of the nice things about having Rabbi Yanklowitz here, uh, <laughs> if there are any questions that are particularly difficult, I'm sure Rabbi Yanklowitz can answer them. Uh, so any, anyone want to make any comments or observations? Uh, yes. So first of all, so good to see you. And, Thank you. Uh, second, so, so to the notion of anti-Semitism, in this time of rising anti-Semitism, does public discourse wearing our Judaism on our sleeve, uh, does that indeed invite danger as, as some people have 
warned or concerned. No, no, we should take a couple more. So when you talk about Jewish people getting involved in public life and, and giving a Jewish perspective on things, how does that happen when Jews among themselves don't agree ah. on issues? Is that true? <laughs> I have a question picking up on that. Sure. Um, well, I, I think, correct me if you think my history is wrong, I think 10 years ago, this conversation would be very normal in the community at large. And now, even the term social justice is like an extremist language, deemed extremist, that in us talking about like caring for refugees and immigrants and the poor, we're like communists, radical communists here, among, among like major segments of the Jewish population. Whereas I think just five, 10 years ago, we could talk about caring for the vulnerable as a Jewish value, and that wasn't automatically Seen as very left-wing so, liberal. So how do we get back to a place where like, Jews can talk about caring for the vulnerable and not be something that the whole Jewish community can talk about? Even if we disagree on government, government <coughs> Any last? Yes. Two last comments. Okay. Okay. Well, yeah, that was the point made. Yes, last comment. In a world where we interact with our Christian neighbors, it's often difficult to start talking about what you believe in social justice without it coming back politically saying, no, you can't do that. And it's hard for people to understand when we want to separate our caring from politics. Okay. Uh, so let me try to answer some of these uh, these points. Uh, the world is different today than it may have seemed even 10, 15, 20 years ago. There's no question about that. Uh, and I don't want anyone to misunderstand me. I do think that uh, there has been, I think, it's empirically true, there has been a rise in public expressions of anti-Semitism in the world in which we live. All you have to do is live in New York City and be extremely mindful of them. Uh, I also didn't go into my whole biography, but uh, Rabbi Yanklowitz alluded to the fact that as a boy I grew up in Newport News, Virginia, uh, Tidewater, Virginia, in the southern part of the state. Uh, it is not exactly what one would call in classical Jewish parlance an ir v'aim b'Yisrael. It's not a uh, great traditional center of Jewish life, Newport News, Virginia. But I was raised uh, in an Orthodox Jewish home there, and I was raised also during a time of uh, absolute racial segregation. Any of you see the movie Hidden Figures? That's actually where it took place, in Hampton, Virginia. Newport, that's where I grew up, exactly in that uh, place, if you've seen that movie. Uh, segregation was real. Uh, and I'm aware of the fact that uh, Jews were often cautious in such situations because uh, unlike northern Jews who came down and participated in uh, many social protests, they feared perhaps how some of their uh, neighbors would respond to them. But that didn't keep uh, 
people from speaking out, sometimes great uh, danger to themselves. One of the challenges we have as Jews is that we are acclimated to a certain view of Jewish history. I mean, all of you know the joke. Uh, what are Jewish holidays about? They tried to kill us. We want to survive. Hooray, let's eat. I mean, that's sort of the motif of almost every Jewish, uh, of every Jewish holiday. Uh, one of the factors Jews can't believe, and I'll talk about this later tonight, the issue of uh, who is a Jew and matters of intermarriage that you have in America are only problems to the Jewish community because, in fact, Jews are still overwhelmingly accepted. We have today almost a 70% intermarriage rate among Jews. From the standpoint of sociology, for our minority group, and I'm going to speak on this later, for there to be a high degree of intermarriage for any minority group, two variables have to be present. One, members of the minority group have to be thoroughly acculturated, and two, members of the majority culture have to see members of that minority group as worthy or acceptable marriage partners. A Gallup poll in the 1980s asking white Christian Americans, how would you feel about your child marrying a Jew? And the choices were, I'd be elated, I'd be fine, I'd be somewhat unhappy but would accept it and I'd hate it. 86% of people said either I'd be elated or I'd be very happy if my child married a Jew. Jews are infinitely more secure in America than they've ever been anywhere else, which does not mean that there is not a degree of social anti-Semitism uh, that exists in this country. But when people, and I read this occasionally, make comparisons between Kristallnacht and what's occurred in America in the last few years, and particularly last few months, you do have, and it's very, very unpleasant, uh, personal expressions of anti-Semitism, and it's horrible when you're the target of it, but it's not the same as political anti-Semitism. The fact is the Jews in Germany could not go to the government. In the United States, the mayor and the governor of New York and other officials come and they protest what it is that's occurred to the Jewish community. Uh, I understand caution that people might perhaps have, but having said that, there is... Uh, in my opinion, no real excuse for Jews not to speak out uh, and display kind of the virtues that the tradition demands. Now, the question that was asked about where does our community rest given its divisions, uh, the reality is there isn't only one Jewish position on virtually any matter. Take, for example, capital punishment. Uh, in general, I won't get into all the details, but in the Talmud and Sanhedrin, it's very difficult uh, for capital punishment to be considered uh, a normative Jewish mode of punishment. In fact, the Talmud says that if a court in 70 years, once in 70 years, executed anyone, it should be called a bloody court. But then what isn't usually quoted is the very next passage in the Talmud says, to the rabbi who said, if you execute one person in 70 years, you're a bloody court. The very next line is, any of you know it? And because of that, murderers increased among the Jewish people. In other words, somehow the capital punishment served as a deterrent to uh, continuing murders. Whether that's true or not is a different issue altogether. I cite it now only to indicate the Jewish tradition can speak 
in a polyvocal way. As one of my teachers, Rabbi David Hartman, put it, Judaism is an interpretive tradition. It speaks in multiple voices. But the reality is the Jewish community needs to have kind of the courage, has to have the courage to be able to speak out and uh, indicate, even in an age like ours, uh, even in an age like ours, that uh, there are commitments that would demand that we speak out and that otherwise we diminish who we are as Jews and as human beings. Uh, the reality is there is a fundamental principle that does lie at the heart of Jewish tradition, even as I spoke of it as being multivalent. The book of Genesis begins with the notion that we are all created, all human beings, male and female, people of every denomination, religion. Uh, we are all created, but Selim Elohim, we're all created in the image of God. And therefore, it requires us to behave in a certain type of way that recognizes uh, the humanity of all persons. The, when I made mention of the fact that if this, my answer isn't sufficient, go to Rabbi Yanklowitz, I'll, I'll end with a story. Uh, this will be homiletical sermonic. Uh, when I was a boy growing up in an Orthodox congregation, the most impressive ceremony in which I participated or observed was that of the Kohanim priests uh, on the holiday services blessing the people. Uh, when the Kohanim would come up, there was a ceremony called Duchanan. The Duchan is the bima, the prayer platform at the beginning of the synagogue. And the Shaliach Sibor, or the prayer leader, would call out uh, to the priest, Kohanim, priests. And then the priest would answer, I'm Am Kadoshecha Ka'amor, your holy people, as it said. And then they would recite a blessing, and the blessing would be praise to you, O Lord our God, ruler of the universe, Asher Kiddushan Bigadushato Shel Aharon, who has made us holy with the holiness of Aaron and commanded us to bless the people, in love. The priest is required to bless the people in love. If the priest does not love the people, the blessing is just not operative. And then you have the traditional tripartite priestly blessing. Yivarechacha Hashem v'yishmerecha, may God bless you and keep you. May God's countenance shine upon you and be gracious to you. May God's face be lifted up to you and may you know peace. I'm positive you've used this a hundred times in your churches, synagogues, and elsewhere. When each word is recited... The Shaliach Sibor, the prayer leader, will call out, May God bless you. And then the Kohanim respond. I was told when I was a boy, you weren't permitted to look. If you looked, God's countenance, God's presence was in the synagogue. And my father, this graduate of Harvard Law School, told me, If you look because God's presence is in the synagogue, you'll be blinded. And if you look a second time, you'll die. And I remember saying to my father when I was eight or nine, well, I don't quite get it. If I'm blinded the first time, how can I see the second time to be killed? That's when I knew I'd become a reform and not an Orthodox rabbi. But I bring this up because I was once sharing this story with a friend of mine, Rabbi Levi Kelman, 
who was a rabbi of a congregation in Jerusalem. And when I shared it with Levy, he told me that his father told him the same thing my father said. But Levy said when he was at a service at the Jewish Theological Seminary, he turned to his father, because of course every child would look, and he said, Abba, Daddy, you told me that I'd see God. But all I see are, and he named the men he knew who were doing the blessing. Where is God? And Rabbi Kelman, Sr., Levy's father, answered, that's a very good question. Ask another member of this congregation, namely Abraham Joshua Heschel. Ask Rabbi Heschel that question. That's a good person to refer your questions to when you're a <laughs> rabbi. And Levy told me, this is what Rabbi Heschel told him. He said, Levy, if what you want to do is see God, you have to look. And remember, Rabbi Heschel is the one, I'm sure many of you know this, who walked with Dr. King in Selma, Alabama, and the line that's been repeated over and over and over again in our Jewish community when he was asked, what did you learn when you walked with Dr. King? I learned I could pray with my feet. Rabbi Heschel said to Levy, Levy, if what you want to do is see God, you have to look in the mirror. But you have to look beyond your physical being. You have to look beyond your parts of, And you have to look deep inside, and you'll see that God is there. And you'll look at your father, your mother, your sisters, and you'll see that God is there too, a spark. And when you go out onto the street in Broadway, you'll see that God is present in every person you see. And the task, he said, Levy, is through the performance of these mitzvot, these commandments. You help to make God's presence that is hidden manifest in the world. And that, in the end, is an absolute Jewish requirement. That is what God requires of us. So the real test becomes not only what it is we do within the synagogue or within our homes, and however difficult it is, and one has to be pragmatic always about how one does things and prudential. But in the end, the commitment we have to this issue, despite whatever the complaints are, uh, is one that I think uh, remains an absolute demand that is placed upon us today. So again, thank you all very much. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.